0: Welcome to the best of the left podcast with clips today from Mother Jones Radio, Rachel Maddow, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, and Lionel
1: Mother Jones Radio. Slicing through spin.
2: This is Mother Jones Radio. I'm Angie Coyro. Accusations about a liberal elite running American academia are not new. What liberal turned conservative activist David Horowitz brings to the table now is well, a concise list. A who's who of higher learning educators he dubs the 100 most dangerous academics in America. That's the subtitle of his book, The Professors. David Horowitz paints the country's most distinguished campuses as essentially recruiting grounds where now at this point I'm reading from the the cover flap, these radical academics, far from being harmless, spew violent anti-Americanism, preach anti-semitism, and cheer on the killing of American soldiers and civilians all the while collecting tax dollars and tuition fees to indoctrinate our children, end quote. We've got David Horowitz, who's also the best-selling author of Unholy Alliance, on the line to talk about his book. David Horowitz, hi. Hi. Uh, we didn't have to look too far to find another voice because some half-dozen of the 101 professors profiled in the book have contributed to the magazine in some form or another. They've written for the website, they've written for the magazine, well. or they've been sources. Joining us, too, is Mark Levine. He's the author of Why They Don't Hate Us. He He's written for the website, and he's been a guest here as well in the past. Mark Levine, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Let me start with David Horowitz. With the very title of your book, you said in a National Review interview that the concept of dangerous professors was attached to the project by your publisher after the book was written as as something of a marketing strategy. So do you, in fact, find the professors dangerous? The, The book
1: is about the intellectual corruption of the universities. The the professors in my book um, it, are are people who are political activists uh, in their professorial roles um, in the classroom in, in their uh, scholarship uh, and they're jeopardizing the entire academic enterprise. If you make universities and university classrooms political, <clears throat> then they will be subject to the same political forces as other institutions uh... and you will have destroyed academic freedom that's really what my book is about
2: mark we're going to move into the profile of you from david horowitz i'm going to read a very brief paragraph and i want to hear back from you on that beneath his trendy exterior levine who has degrees from hunter college and new york university is an utterly unoriginal incarnation of very old and discredited intellectual ideas His worldview encompasses a quasi-communist utopia, a classless future where all racial, nationalist, and cultural identities are dissolved. In other words, the discredited vision of Marx that led to the deaths of 100 million people while bankrupting whole continents in the last century. Mark?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, It's the most ludicrous description I've ever heard. Forget about whether it's unoriginal, That's that's an aesthetic. Uh, comment that uh, I, that everyone has the right to be, but he, he's accusing me of being responsible for a steady stream of anti-American and anti-Israel diatribes, which is ludicrous. If anyone reads the book or any one of my work, uh, where I constantly criticize the Muslim world as much as uh, as much as the U.S., and, and this idea about being unoriginal or, or taught, wanting a society where race and, and class and other issues are dissolved is the exact opposite of the point of the book. If as, Anyone who's read it would know, which is that we need to form new kinds of cultures that in fact recognize and respect all cultures and can enrich other cultures, not dissolve them. so the very premise is common in fact the, if you look at the end of that uh, the end of my profile it 's researched by someone i don 't know who it is, but I, I, I fear that a lot of these chapters uh, the research is done by interns who you know probably need to go back to college because so much of what it said is just factually misrepresenting my views and the views of many of my colleagues who who have been uh, doing stories since the publication of the book.
2: David Horowitz, this uh, research here is credited to Zvi Khan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, d- how much of your work went into this chapter per se? Did you did you clear all the facts well, here?
1: I'm not I'm not clear which um, what what book um, Professor Levine is referring to. He's written more than one book, now.
2: Well, I'm talking about the person who, who's taking responsibility yeah, for what's I, in your chapter hmm. about Mark Levine.
1: Well, look, I, I, um, I'm, I'm just okay. Uh, actually, we quote him criticizing. Um, I mean, I, I've, i never, I don't, have uh, never met Zvi Khan. Um, um, Well, but this is the point. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm the Mark, Mark, Mark Levine, Mark Levine, Mark Levine.
2: I want you to hold that thought, please. Please okay, continue, sure. David Horowitz. And
1: but the the book actually says that to bring uh, the socialist millennia to fruition, he claims it is necessary to dig beyond the easy symbolism of freedom, democracy, Zionism equals race racism, uh, and other mantras and so forth. So I, I you know it's not like he's presented as a um, somebody who doesn't have a critical thought within the left.
2: But if I may follow up on that, what you say immediately after that? is, quote, for someone claiming to be a historian to suggest modernity consists simply of oppositions is as preposterous as lumping together slavery, terrorism, and the IMF. To be fair, I don't think Marx simply reduced it to that. He took together a swell of phenomena of history and says that they all contribute to where we are today.
3: Not only that, I mean, if I could just interrupt, not only that, the whole point about saying the simple mantras is that i'm saying you have to move beyond these mantras so to then say i'm operating within these mantras when i'm criticizing This is the whole point. With all due respect, I don't think Mr. Horowitz, he's reading quotes from my book or the back flap of my book or pieces. He clearly hasn't read the whole book because he's too smart to make the criticisms that are being represented as as his own. If he actually sat and read all 400 some odd pages of that book, which goes into a very detailed critique of modernity over 500 years based on sources in eight languages. So to say I simply do this. I mean, this is like, why are we wasting our time with this kind of back and forth when, we, when there's so many issues we need to be debating? And this is supposed to be a critique of scholars when it's so filled with errors and there's so many problems in the, in the way it's presented that it could never qualify as a piece of scholarship. So, well, I mean, let, let's at least get our facts straight. Let's at least have real research done by the person who's the author of the book. And then let's have a real debate.
2: David Horowitz, I saw the word collusion I I saw words about recruiting and indoctrinating I did not and to be fair, I did not read this book cover to cover but I read it fairly thoroughly I did not see evidence of that level of conspiracy where there's an actual unified move to bring in a left wing perspective only and to boot out any other points of view. Are you alleging that that's there and if so, what proof do you have? Yeah,
1: You need to read the the introduction uh, to the book, which is
2: That part I did read.
1: Okay. Well, the introduction makes very clear what happened. My generation actually did not want to serve um, in Vietnam, Uh, got student deferments, stayed in school, and got PhDs. These people, their mentality was that of political activists. And their their, uh, spiritual uh, guide was, of course, Antonio Gramsci. And the idea was that the universities are means of cultural production, and they are the path to cultural hegemony and revolution. And so, these these professors uh, came in with an idea to use the universities for political. Agendas now, political agendas are quite legitimate, but they're not legitimate in a university. That's really what the book is about.
2: Well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm what I'm asking for specifically is evidence yeah, a, evidence about, of collusion, they, evidence of conspiracy. Right, Where is said that? about said uh, well, you
1: know, for, of course, you know, they created black studies. Uh, the black studies, the first two black studies programs were Cornell and San Francisco State. These were done by political. Uh, agitations, actually a, a, a strike that shut down San Francisco State. And they take over of an administration building with loaded shotguns, the demand that we're going to create a new field, um, and that we're going to appr- appoint our own professors. And this is where politics was introduced in a big way into the university. Women's studies followed. Um, um, radicals got control of search and hiring committees. Um, they refer to it as Revolution by Search Committee, and they've instituted a 30-year blacklist of conservatives, so that uh, conservatives are a rapidly diminishing.
2: Who, who is that who's established a blacklist, and, and where's the evidence of it?
1: The evidence is, for example, that at Berkeley and Stanford, where studies have been done, uh, the total, the, ra- the ratio of first of all conservatives to leftists on College campuses used to be somewhat of a parity with, with a, a moderate uh, center, uh, just like it used to really reflect more um, where the population is. Uh, today, it's somewhere between 7 and 9 or 10 to 1. Among all professors at Berkeley and Stanford, it's 7 to 1 and 9 to 1. Among junior professors, it's 30 to 1. That can only be explained by a political blacklist. Response, Mark. Look,
3: I've sat in in about fifteen hirings. I can say, and I will swear on a stack of every religious book in the world, six copies of them if necessary, that never has the has anyone's political views in any way begun to creep into any kind of decision about whether or not they were hired, or whether they made the first cut or the second cut. It is purely and simply what is the level of their scholarship how good is their language training how good is their command of the sources are they taking the field and, and opening new sources how well do they know the country they're working in these are the how respected are they how many publications do they have, these are the kind of things that we look for. And to say, and for him to make these claims, it's very easy to make them, but they're utterly unsupportable in almost every case. Does it happen once in a while? I'm sure it does. But you can't generalize to the entire American university system from, from one or two cases which you can document. That is an unsupportable accusation by any academic uh, standard.
2: I want to thank you both, gentlemen. You helped to conduct this in a very sane manner. David Horowitz's book is The Professor's The 101 Most Dangerous Academics in America. And you can find Mark Levine's book on the shelves as well, Why They Don't Hate Us. They have both written in the past for Mother Jones and or MotherJones.com.
4: We know From the experience of what's happened in Iraq so far uh, that we did not learn the lessons from Vietnam about which wars we ought to get involved in and which wars we ought to avoid Uh, the question though is is are we also ignoring lessons from Vietnam about how to treat our vets when they come home what's happening to the families of soldiers uh, who return from war what's happening to the soldiers themselves it's a story that we really haven't been focusing on that much in American culture and in American politics as we see Iraq war veterans returning home to their families Uh, I think it's a story that we ought to be talking about more and I think that we will be able to talk about it more as a country thanks uh, to the memoir published by our next guest Uh, her name is Danielle Trussoni she's the author of falling through the earth her story her memoir just published provides a glimpse into the turmoil in her family caused by her father's return from the Vietnam War Uh, Danielle Trussoni thank you for being here
5: thanks for having me
4: your father is the subject of the book and uh, your relationship with your father give us a sketch of of who he who he is who he was as
2: man
5: Um, my father was born in a small town in the Midwest Mm -hmm. um, and he was um, raised in a family of 12 Catholic children a big crazy family he was drafted to go to Vietnam in 1967 and he went in 1968 in the early part right as the Tet Offensive was sort of erupting Um, and he volunteered pretty shortly after he arrived to be a tunnel rat. I don't know if you know what tunnel rats did, but um, they were sent down into the networks and labyrinths of tunnels that the Viet Cong and the Viet Minh actually before them had um, built. To discover documents and Viet Cong and all sorts of elements of the um, resistance that was happening and so
4: as a as a tunnel rat he he volunteered for this why would anybody volunteer for that sort of thing
5: that's kind of the central question of my book I think you know the the book ex tries attempts to excavate my father's personality um, which I never could understand um, growing up and even as an adult so sort of the you know one thing that I was interested in is as finding why he would volunteer to do such a job. You know, the theories that I came to as I wrote the book were, you know, there are many. One was that he was sort of a daredevil, tough kind of guy. Yeah. Another was that I think he was a little bit of a control freak and that he wanted to choose his battle he wanted by choosing to go into the into the tunnels it was him against whoever was down there mm-hmm. and i think he in that way the way that i put it in the book is he could reduce the whole crazy war into this one conflict this one encounter into this one enclosed physical space exactly literally. exactly and i think that that was um you know just knowing my father that that was preferable even though it was more dangerous it was more um physically difficult um the i think the casualty
4: rate for people who did this was incredibly high very
5: very high yeah very high um and in fact a good friend of his the the man who had trained him was killed entering a tunnel right in front of my father and that you know was the point where my father actually stopped going down i think that was an extremely traumatic moment for him how long was he in vietnam a year
4: in case you're just joining us, our guest is Danielle Trussoni, who's the author of Falling Through the Earth, which is a memoir about her relationship with her father, who was a combat veteran uh, from Vietnam. Did your dad ever uh, talk about post-traumatic stress disorder or the, the, the psychological impact of the war, I mean, I know from reading the book that he wasn't uh, enthusiastic about talking about the war uh, when he was sober, at least certainly yeah, at usually. all. Yeah. No,
5: um, after he was diagnosed, um, because he was diagnosed as having severe PTSD, about 35 years after he came back. How did that happen? Um, he started needing medical be- benefits from the VA. He mm-hmm. wanted to have medical benefits, so he had to go through the, you know, the steps to get that, and one of those steps was a psychological evaluation, um, and um, I had a copy of the report he gave to me after he had it he's like look i'm nuts um but you know and i read through the symptoms and it was amazing for me because i had dealt with these symptoms my whole life what kind of symptoms um you know paranoia um feeling like he needed to be in control being worried about you know that someone could walk in the door behind him like Mm -hmm. these sorts of just um psychological protective you know he had a protective coating over himself he was extremely hard unemotional affectless um just you know there were a lot of different reactions that he had um, that you thought were just your dad I thought they were just that's dad and all of yeah. it you know my sister and brother all of us thought that that's just how he
4: was and we adapted and then how old were you when you started when you realized that your dad's experiences in the war were shaping who he was as your dad were shaping who he was as a man?
5: I think it was um, when I was in college and I started actually looking into the war, started talking and started speaking to professors, started thinking about it in a more political and historical sense, that I really saw my father as someone who had been shaped by that war. And in turn, us, you know, his kids, his, you know, my mother, we all were sort of um, working around this experience that he had had without any of us really knowing that that's what we were doing.
4: I don't talk to all that many authors, uh, and I don't talk to that many memoirists, certainly. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you is uh, we're the same age. I was born in April 73. You were born in November 73. Uh, my dad served in the Air Force during Vietnam. He had nothing like your father's experience at all. But I feel like this is our generational story about what veterans brought home from Vietnam. It's not our story of having been in war, but it's our parents. It's our father's. And... I almost now, as a person who covers the Iraq War every day, I feel like I almost can't imagine the generational impact 30 years from now of the kids of all the dads who are in uh, Iraq right now, and the kind of warfare they're engaged in, the fact that there's been a million Americans through that theater already, the kinds of conflict they're involved in. And I just feel like, as a country, we haven't gotten our heads around this at all.
5: No, we haven't addressed it. We haven't even begun to address it. I think as a as a country and, you know, just as people, we think of the violence happening in country. We think of the, you know, the collateral damage that happens or, you know, the number of soldiers killed when actually those, pe- you know, those men and women coming home bring that with them and it just seeps into the community in a very subtle and um, sort of nefarious way that, you know, it's so below the radar that we don't talk about it. Um, I think that we are going to have to start talking about this, um, especially because as you said, you know, there's so many people coming back. It's just, uh, you know, it's a big um, issue that we have to discuss right
4: now. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the the people who are talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, about after support for veterans who have seen combat, about mental health issues and mental health support and social, really social support needs for people who've been in combat, people who are really getting that on the agenda right now are guys who are in in the first Gulf War. They've just started to talk about that and we're only considering it for them we have not even gotten anywhere near the topic of how it affects the family members and so you know the only person that i know who's ever discussed for example the high divorce rate among iraq vets and afghanistan vets is uh, paul rykoff who founded the iraq and afghanistan veterans of america the biggest organization for vets of that conflict but um you know the, the social service needs that are going to unfold for the, the the folks who we've got abroad and in theater right now. Just, I mean, it breaks my heart. I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that we can become a country who can handle it.
5: I don't think um, that we're prepared. Historically, we haven't prepared ourselves, you know, Vietnam vets, even World War II vets, these people of didn't course. come home and it just dissolved because it was a so called just war. Yeah. You know, it doesn't ever, it doesn't matter if the, the war is just or unjust or, you know, the reasons for being there, those effects are the same. And they come back and they do the same damage no matter what war we're talking about. Yeah. And um, simultaneously, we seem to be cutting, um, you know, in our budget, money for, you know, veteran services. Sure. So, you know this is a huge paradox. And I think that it's something that we, as a you know, as a country and just in the lo- our local communities, are going to have to start dealing with,
4: yeah, and it's in its stories and and being moved by individual people's plight that's going to do it, which is why I think politically that your memoir is really important. I know that your father has very recently passed away within the last month. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, thank you and you've written a book about your dad it's a memoir it's a per- it's your personal story about you and your dad and you're touring the country having to talk about him having just lost him the hardest
5: thing was the the wake and the funeral because the book came out that weekend it's clear i think in the book how much i loved my father mm-hmm. but it's also very true um you know well rounded depiction of him you know he's not always good in that book no. and so i think one um, reaction that people have when they're mourning and when they lose someone is they want to have the fairy tale picture of that person like i would sit my bad my hero you know, exactly and yeah. my brothers and sisters like suddenly everyone forgot this real person and they started inventing like oh he was such a great you know remember how he did this when we went fishing and you know that sort of thing yeah and for me i had this book sitting right in front of me so there is no way i could fool myself yeah so the sort of dislocation of wanting to create a different story of my dad and having the real one sitting there before me was just really hard. I've, I've kind of learned to talk about it without getting upset. But when I have a free hour or two and I'm sitting around and I glance at my book and there's that picture, I do feel myself kind of...
4: Well, when this tour is over, it's going to be an unusual grieving process. I know. I'm sure.
5: I think so. Well, um, Danielle,
4: it's a a great book as a book. And I think, as I said, I mean, I don't mean to be uh, hard and cold about it, but I think it's really politically important, too, because it's through people being moved by your story about what this meant, what your dad's experience meant for you as a kid and meant for your family as a family, that's going to make people t- start taking seriously the long view we need to be taking about taking care of vets when they come home after these experiences. And I will say, you know, you don't come off as perfect in the book either. You did feed your brother mud pies, real, <laughs> real mud pies. I mean, come on. Yes, we did.
6: <laughs>
4: Danielle Trisoni, thanks again and good luck.
6: Thank you.
7: Bobby, we have Jim in Buffalo, New York, listens on WHLD 1270 AM. Jim, how are you? I'm great. Good. How are you doing? Good. What do you want to talk about?
8: Well, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to uh, the head of the VA and his wife, and they were talking about having visited hospitals where soldiers had come back from uh, Iraq, and they were saying how these soldiers, every one of them was saying how all they wanted to do was get back to their units.
7: To go back and fight. you mean? Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. That uh, that shows you how great
9: our American soldiers are and what a a shame it is that we are not giving
0: them what we ought to be, the respect and attention that we ought to be.
8: I'm a veteran of Vietnam era, and I volunteer at the Veterans Hospital, too, so I was stationed in a hospital in Seattle, Washington. We were receiving soldiers coming back and then sending them off to rehab and reconstructive surgery. I mean, in many cases, 50 surgeries to repair these terribly, terribly broken bodies. And these guys were saying to me, you know, not, oh, I wish I could go back and fight. They were saying, I wish I was dead. Yeah, I wish I was in a well, one of those black plastic bags.
7: Yeah,
8: you know, I'm going home to, to a wife and two small children. I look like a monster.
7: Yeah, Jim, have I mean, you have you looked at what's? Ha- I mean, the, when you when you read the reports about how bad these injuries are—the the burns, the amputations, the blind, the paralyzed—they're they're worse. They're, they're worse even in this war, if you can imagine, know than they were in Vietnam, and, and the know. the numbers are higher the the, yeah. the the numbers of injuries per year it's somewhere around seven thousand in Viet in Vietnam era it was about seven thousand per year here it's twelve to thirteen thousand per year
8: and and you know and that doesn't get talked about enough because you know I had a hundred guys telling me that they they couldn't face going back to their families looking the way that they did you know quadriplegics and and, and paraplegics and you know, uh, faces blown away, and and it's something that this president and this administration shields from the public.
7: One thing we're doing is we're outfitting these soldiers with Vietnam-era equipment. I don't know if you followed the story where $9 billion came up missing. Uh, Yeah, it did. Okay. Well, that that nine billion dollars—it—it was just scammed, just absolutely scammed down in Iraq. It's in somebody's pockets in hundred-dollar bills. That can you imagine how much equipment we could have—we could have bought to protect our soldiers with that? But right now they don't even have body armor. They don't even have armor for their Humvees. And and the problem is you have thirty. 5,000 soldiers wounded so far that we know of And, and obviously everybody suspects we don't really even have the numbers. We have better technology today. Than we've ever had, but the government won't spend money on it. You have Bush closing yeah. seven major veterans hospitals. You had a situation where there's almost almost 250,000 soldiers that have to wait six months to be treated in VA facilities. So yeah, yeah every time I see mm-hmm. Bush against this military backdrop, where he's at, where he acts like he really cares, where he acts like he's one of them, he's not one of them. He oh, ran. Yeah. He ran from the war, Jim. I don't know if you know that. Go on. Go on the uh, Air America website, you're going to see something called Operation Call Home. It's a program to where we actually get donations to help upgrade soldiers' helmets. In other words, we're having to have the citizenry pay for that because the government is squandering money. It's being given to corporate America so they can make money on the blood of our soldiers. It's, it's, yeah. being, it's being given to the, to the oil industry that has more money than... They have so much money, they're coming out saying they can't spend it all, but George Bush relates to those people much better than than he relates to a soldier in the field, because he's never been a damn soldier in the field. Oh, he ran yeah. away from war.
8: But, uh, you know, one of the strange things that I find at the veterans' hospitals is that the veterans there are so gun hauled pro-Bush, pro-administration, and I I, I want to scream when I go in there and say you know wake up wake up Jim, know, they're around
7: they're they're around it all day you can't really blame them for it you, you, don't you well except there's
0: that poll right there's a Zogby poll that says that 70% of oh, yeah. soldiers in Iraq want to get out of Iraq want the US out of Iraq within a year yeah. that they do not believe president bush that they differ with his policies
8: yeah, and but um, there's, there's so much money there's so much corporate money tied up in Iraq that, you know, that's not going to be the governing policy.
7: Yeah, well it it, it is, it has become a corporate war, hasn't it? I don't know if you followed the story, there was some question with with Halliburton, I call it Cheney's Halliburton, because Cheney has about uh, 12 million dollars worth of interest in that company as soon as he he hangs up his Spurs as Vice President. And now the Halliburton-Cheney group has been given a quarter of a billion dollars on a contract that the pentagon itself was questioning they said here's a contract that there's been no trail of documents we don't have adequate receipts but what ended up happening was you know what happened is a call came from cheney to some general in the pentagon saying make this go through and it did and there's another quarter of a billion dollars that could have been spent on taking care of these soldiers once they're injured and and certainly equipping them better to where average american doesn't have to buy helmets for the soldiers
3: Somebody somewhere had another plan Now he's got a rival in his hand Rolling in a bag then wondering how he got this far He's just another poor boy off the flattery
4: Do you ever wonder though how the United States image abroad has become so tainted? What kind of a time frame did this take place over? And given that the whole world has basically become a very anti-American place, what can we do about changing that? We're joined in studio this morning by Julia Swig. She's the author of Friendly Fire, Losing Friends and Making Enemies in the Anti-American Century, brand new book just out. She's also the director of Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Julia, thank you for being here. Thanks, Rachel, for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, during my lifetime, during my, I guess, post-adolescence even, uh, I have learned that Backpackers, American backpackers traveling abroad, traveling in Europe, uh, feel safer putting Canadian patches on their backpacks than American patches on their backpacks, even when they're Americans.
6: Well, you must have been an adolescent not so long ago, because I remember as a post-adolescent that being an American in Europe wasn't quite so hard. We didn't have to lie and say we were Canadian, but that's increasingly the case now. Well, is this a George W. Bush phenomenon? Is this a war in Iraq phenomenon, or did this start before that? Well, I I think that if we you try to ask the question how could one president and one war so profoundly globalize opinion against the united states yeah. the answer is it's the war it's bush but it's also a lot more during the cold war those seeds were planted even among our closest friends most intimate alliances for the sort of resentment and backlash we're experiencing today and it's not just the cold war and it's not just bush and iraq it's also some of the very sort of clarion ideas that the united states has represented since the end of the cold war as the ticket to prosperity for all to the end of history globalization democratization Globalization and Americanization are now synonymous. After the Cold War, the United States essentially said to the developing world, this is your ticket to the future, to float all boats, open your market, liberalize trade. And many bought that recipe lock stock and barrel and especially in Latin America the disappointment has been so profound inequality worse poverty up and the United States is associated with those failures
4: well lock stock and barrel I mean that has a double meaning because in some cases people didn't have a choice about this you take poor countries who desperately need the kind of economic assistance that they can get only from international financial institutions the US has incredibly disproportionate power over those institutions they didn't get a choice about a lot of our globalization ideas and fairy tales they had to accept them
6: no, but let's talk about who the they is yeah. because one of the, the the key points of this book is when I talk about power and powerlessness. Who are America's friends abroad? Our top 20, our elites, our professionals, those in the private sector, in government, in the media, perhaps with Air America being the exception, we get our information from the top 20 elites abroad in other countries. And it's the sort of exchange of information between the 20 at the top, leaving out sort of the rest of the world and the, the, top, rest, 20% the top 20% elites within, of within elite, a whole bunch of different countries. With a whole bunch of different countries. Okay. and And so who accepted these economic recipes were our peers those people who are very, very good at telling our elites what we want to hear and who actually... well-intentioned, let's just assume it's all well-intentioned, believe that opening markets and and liberalizing and privatization was the way to go. The problem is that the United States didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the domestic internal politics within X, Y, or Z country. Mm -hmm. We were interested in the macroeconomic profile, the friendliness to investment. The notion was with growth, then you got prosperity, but growth in fact didn't bring benefits that was expected. So that issue of sort of where is our ear to the ground or not mm-hmm. is, I think, fundamental to how we got ourselves into this mess. You think about Ahmed Chalabi and going back to Iraq. Sure. He sort of sang a song that we wanted to hear. We bought it. It connected to what... WMD, we were going to be greeted by liberators. Lo and behold, not the case. We're getting our information from the wrong people. That's like a fundamental piece of this. The
4: thing that's most interesting to me about your book is that it's rooted in the in an understanding of Latin American politics because that's your area of specialty. Right. And you make this very convincing case that, that, that America uh, um, and Americanism and globalization are seen as the same thing. And so as globalization has really turned sour for majorities in a lot of Latin American countries, as globalization has turned turned into a bad thing that's just made it's it's american mirror that's made americanism that goes along with it and is synonymous with it that's also turned people against american influence if it's not you know, the war in Iraq, if it's not the particular type of... I'm not of,
6: saying it's not those things. It's not, but if it's if
4: it's not only the war in Iraq, if it's not the particular modern type of chauvinism as represented by the neocons and the Vulcans in, in Washington, if it does have these bigger roots and these bigger things mm-hmm. that we've been working on for
6: a generation and more, how do we ever turn it around? Well, look, I don't think that the goal ought to be to turn it around, because I think it's a fact of, of who we are and our size and our power. It's always been around. During the Cold War, during the 20th century, the American century, there was always uh, anti-Americanism, sort of marginal, annoying, sometimes it's very been loud. Fashionable but anti-Americanism. It, but yes, sure. on the on the left, on mm-hmm. the right, here and there. So that's not the the ism that I'm worried about. What's cha- and I think that if we got back to that kind of fashionable anti-Americanism, we'd be in good shape. Yeah. The issue is now is that it's become sort of a global reflex. We've lost the benefit of the doubt. How do you get that back? And in large measure. There is, there are policy answers, not public diplomacy. Public diplomacy, Karen Hughes's. Right. Pay no job, attention to what we do, just take these pretty coloring books with our president in them. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, the other day, one of her deputies was in London, I guess, advancing Condi's trip, and she said, Guantanamo is not a spa. <laughs> so, you know, this is grasping at spas, if you will, to the public diplomacy approach. Wow. But the issue really is, There are many substantive policy issues on which the United States, even before September 11, even before Iraq, thumbed its nose to the world. Global climate change is a real issue, and we said the science just didn't prove it, and that was cynical. But we've got to get back involved on on global climate change issues. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, how we deal with genocide. I mean, the United States does have a lot of power, but we're not putting it in the direction that so much of the world could actually benefit from it experiencing. And also... Our unilateralism in general, you know, the, one of the things that drove Latin America actually nuts in the last four or five years mm-hmm. wasn't so much just the bilateral issues, globalization, intervention, drug war. It was actually how we deploy our power globally. That unilateralism, dismissing institutions that are multilateral, that littler countries need to protect themselves yeah. from the big giant Goliath, that stuff is serious. <clears throat> and there's a somewhat sort of surprising end in the book, maybe, but I think actually manners and empathy and respect, sort of basic common sense uh, ways of being in the world that we have lost could easily come back in. The Democrats, however, and I do want to say this, would be deluding themselves to think that by taking the White House, they're going to be able to reverse this necessarily. This is, I think, a long-term sure. problem. Sure, yeah, it's a
4: long-term problem, but you do you do portray it as a a, a temporally specific problem. It's not something that just is out of our hands, and it's this creeping thing, and they hate us because we're powerful, which no, that is what is you not. always hear on the right. I mean, we are the government that most, we are the country that most pushed for those international institutions that were founded in the middle of the last century. We've come a long way from there, but it was us. It was this country. It was this people. We Can go back to that and uh, get back to uh, uh, maybe a less nefarious and more fashionable (laughs) anti-Americanism that that our our parents understood. I guess Julia, this is a great book. Thank
6: you for writing it, and I hope you uh, you uh, I hope you get booked
4: everywhere and talk it up everywhere because I think it's important. Thank you
6: so much, Rachel.
4: Julia Swag is the author. The book is called Friendly Fire: Losing Friends and Making Enemies in the Anti-American Century. It's important. I recommend it. We're going to post a link to it at mattoonline.com.
9: Uh, it says here F in Utah, but I'm guessing it's Jeff in Utah online, too. What's up, F? It's Jeff, J-E-S-S. Hey, what's, what's going on? Oh, Jeff, hey, what's going on? I, jeff I love you guys. My God, what you're doing, I appreciate it so much. But Thanks. I just, I enjoyed the conversation just recently. I have to tell you that if I'd have known where America was going to go, I wouldn't have gone to Vietnam, and I think we'd been better off taking out people here instead of there. I, listen, I'm against violence. I'm against war. I'm against killing. But w- what's the perspective here? You know, like what they did to us and what they had us do for them and what we got out of it and what we're getting. I would not go to war for America again. I wouldn't lay my life
10: on the line. Well, Jeff, and, it doesn't it depend on the war? I yes, mean, Yes,
9: it does. Yes, it does. But that was a lie. This is another lie. When I look at those kids, and I was a kid, all these kids laying their lives down for this bullshit
10: yeah I, I first of all on these two wars that we're talking about vietnam and iraq you couldn't possibly be more right i mean it makes me sick to think of those kids going and dying on the, in this absolutely senseless war not only was it based on a lie and all that stuff that we all already know but what's driving me crazy is that it's counterproductive absolutely and you know they're all dying To make the situation worse. And you know, people don't want to say that. Democrats don't want to say that because, oh, that sounds defeatist and that's bad politics. But we're not politicians here. You know, we can tell you how it actually is. And the fact is, I got a story right in front of me. That's what I was going to go to if we didn't take the calls. About how the Kurds have begun all these processes of splitting up from Iraq. But Muqtada al Sadr, the, the crazy cleric there, has sent in 240 units to reinforce his battle position in Kirkuk. There's guaranteed civil war coming Absolutely, up. Jeff, Absolutely, Jeff.
9: Before, before we uh, before we let you go, for how you did what? Did, uh, one tour in, in Vietnam. One tour in Vietnam, but you know what? Listen. What year? What year were you there, buddy? I was during, there during the Tet Offensive. 1960. Yeah, and it's like you know what it is, man. If you're 18 years old and your flag is the most important thing in your life, and you go there, and you you put your life on the line, you come back and you see what we're doing now. It's like. What a violation of patriotism that these people have put us through, and now they're doing it to all these boys again.
10: Jeff, I, I, listen, you're entirely right, and it's so easy to stoke the fires of passion in an 18-year-old boy yeah. to say, "Hey, you got to go ahead and wrap yourself in this flag, and the flag means freedom, and the flag means this, and it means that." So go ahead and kill that guy for me for it, and you know, and it's something that's sacred, and that should be done so rarely for the most important of principles absolutely and what a violation and yet we do it over and over for things that are counterproductive that violate those principles and we you know we we ruin you know the honor that we we're trying to build in that symbol and jeff did i mean when you were there how long did you stay in vietnam
9: one year and you know what now that i'm back i was there for fighting for people like you not to what we've got now, you know? What we have now isn't worth fighting for. This country isn't worth fighting, I'm saying. Not in a foreign land, this country is not worth fighting for.
10: Jeff, did, you know, you fought there for a year. Did you, I actually didn't have to kill anybody. I was going to ask you, you didn't have to kill anybody. No,
9: I flew with the Air Force. We flew airplanes. We landed in the Nang once with 36 holes in the airplane. That's kind of strange, but, yeah. yeah. You
10: know, I bring this up a lot, but, I mean, what Rumsfeld and President Bush have done with this war in Iraq is exploited the devotion and Absolute. loyalty that these boys, you know,
9: Absolutely. swear
10: into when they join the military. I
9: wrote, a pa- I wrote a poem called Patriotism Violated. It's 11 pages long, but you know what? When I got on with that, I move forward. Well, God bless you. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for your service to the country. Thanks for calling. And and you're a real patriot and a great American. Thank you. Thanks for for you guys. Hey, thank you, Jeff.
10: You know, Jeff didn't have to kill anybody, but there was a lot of people in Vietnam, certainly a lot of people in Iraq, who go over there and not only risk their lives, but kill other human beings based on these lies. I mean, we talk about it every day, and we still don't get it. I mean the gravity, imagine if they sent you there and you killed people. And as you know, that we, when we're talking about the peace in the nation, you know, you saw people eye to eye. Sometimes in earlier wars, they wouldn't... World War, in World War Two. which World was in World War Two, World War II, II, they wouldn't pull the trigger because they were sick about killing other people. And then the military changed the language and it became, you
9: know, collateral damage and it was targets eliminated instead of Germans dead right, and or Japanese
10: dead. Neutralized. Now, you asked people to kill for you and for this idea and then it turns out it was a lie and that you've just made the situation worse how do you live with yourself and then you say no, no 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 I'm supporting the truth yeah and so let me tell you something You're 32% still supporting the president it's shameful it's shameful old
9: oh, man look at my life I'm a lot like you were old
11: oh, man look at my life I'm a lot like what we did was we went in their eyes, and attacked a Muslim country. Now, if we turned over weapons of mass destruction and factories that are producing botulinum toxin and VX and this and that, they'd be hard-pressed to say, well, you know, yeah, they did invade a Muslim country, but doggone it if they didn't find exactly what they said they would find. Well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So then what are we doing? Well, we're there. And we're killing people, okay, killing people from their point of view. We say, oh, no, 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 au contraire, mon frere, we're liberating people. Oh, and how many people have we liberated? Well, we really don't know. And I like this one, well, we've opened schools. You mean you reopened schools. You see, there were schools there under Saddam Hussein. One of the things I love is when people imagine, and no, no basis of reality, but, but just imagine what Baghdad was. And I have a friend of mine who was in the oil business, and a uh, trader, and he asked me, at T-R-A-D-E-R, and he said, have you ever been to Baghdad? I looked at him and I said, no. He said, well, I have a bunch of times. And he said, did you know there were synagogues in Baghdad? There were, Tariq Aziz was a Catholic Women went to universities, and there were female doctors. I mean, it wasn't perfect, of course. There were the rape rooms and the wood chippers and ude and kuse. But the idea that Baghdad was some third-world hovel is ridiculous. Look at it now. And the thing that nobody talks about, which kills me, because this transcends wars, and this transcends this will affect us centuries from now. But Think of all the antiquities that were looted, that we'll never see again. This had to do with, this had to do with the basis of human existence. Think about it. That was, they were just looted, and they, they were we were warned. And no matter what happens, a, a century from now when we're all dead and gone, that fact, those antiquities, that record of our human existence, is forever gone, forever, because we didn't care. All right, mission accomplished.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. So, the short explanation is that the show is going through a bit of growing pains. So, last week was a gigantic clusterfuck of um, software issues and corrupted files, and an, an entire section of my website that has been having trouble, and finally the it it was th- the the cancer was threatening to spread, and I had to amputate. So if you're listening in the iTunes feed, um, right there are no archives in that feed right now. So if you're a new listener or if you just missed some of the old shows for whatever reason, uh, I encourage you to go to the website bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and uh, subscribe, if only temporarily, to the MP3 feed, that still has uh, the archives. And, um, well, the archives going back as far as like, I don't know, 30 episodes, 20 episodes, uh, whatever it is. Um, And then the full archives you can get directly from the website, although it's not in the feed itself. I hope that makes sense, and, um, well, or just that you even care to hear about that. I am totally backed up from last week. Um, just because I only put out three shows last week does not in any way mean that I didn't have five shows ready to go. So this week, I, you know, I shouldn't even say this because there's a decent chance it won't happen, but I'm going to try, um, possibly to the chagrin of those of you who uh, wish the shows were shorter and easier to fit in. But um, but th- here's the thing about this show. Uh, it has become extremely therapeutic to me to put these shows out. Uh, during last week when my software was messing up and I couldn't put a show out, I would go and I would be listening to my... Regular daily shows that I listen to, and I was getting so much more frustrated at the state of the world and The reason I was frustrated is because i I felt like a you know a corked bottle or something i usually i I hear all this stuff, and then I think to myself, "Oh, this will be great! I'll be so happy to get this out in the podcast. I want everybody to hear about this and then last week, I wasn't able to get the shows out, and so I just felt. You know, it was like the uh, psychological version of what I imagine constipation must feel like. I, I've been lucky enough to not actually experience that firsthand, so I won't go into any more detail. But it, it was it was really frustrating last week, and so this week, um, kind of the whole point is that I want to get caught up. I don't want those shows to just fall through the cracks. So there may be actually seven shows coming out this week, and not only that, they might be a few minutes longer than usual. I guarantee what I'm doing right now is the most I will speak for the rest of the week um, because the shows are going to be long enough already without me talking. I just wanted to get this out, get a little explanation out. I'm going to be transitioning to new servers. it's it could it could be a giant mess, so uh, be forewarned and just hang in there with me. If you would like to hear any uh, more of the specifics or the details of of what's been going on, uh, you can email me hippysympathizer at gmail dot com. I I feel totally okay about putting out that offer there um, because I I do not. Foresee having to write a lot of responses to that because I can't imagine that anybody really cares that much. Um, also, if you want to find out how you can help the show, there there are several ways uh, that you could help. So email me about that as well. Um, I if if you've been listening for a very long time, you heard me kind of jokingly say months ago that I was looking for interns to help me work on the show. And, um, and then more recently I actually mentioned that I have one, which is great. And I would love to have more. There's, there's lots, there's lots to do with this show that, um, I mean, it's, it's easy stuff, but it takes a long time. And if, uh, if anyone is interested in, in helping out the show, it would help me enormously and, and help me take on more of these uh, more of these tasks as in um, making sure the show doesn't crash and burn, so to speak. So if you're interested in anything like that or just want to send me comments about the show in general, do it. That's all I got for you today. Have a good one.